This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is sponsored by Ansvar. Ansvar protects more than 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Featured Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And in this episode we are discussing some of the news stories that have caught our eye in the past week or so. And in this week's Good News Bulletin we've got a seriously impressive four-year-old who is hastening the approach of my midlife crisis. (laughs) Anyway, you join us as we're about to clock off for our team Christmas meal. Our business meeting. Business meeting? Yes, it's a business meeting, Rebecca. It's not a Christmas meal. It's a a business meeting with uh, cheese and wine. And um, it's also fictional and it's not actually happening. It's fictional? Yes, it never happened. Well, it's not going to happen. And even if it did happen, which it won't, uh, no rules will be broken during the business meeting. Okay, I correct myself. Uh, You join us as we're all off for Schrodinger's Christmas business meeting. Uh, we are, however, making the error of recording the discussion of Schrodinger's <laughs> business, Christmas, non-fictional cheese, wine meeting that isn't going to happen. But even if it did happen, which it didn't, it would all be within the rules. Uh, what? There is absolutely no way any of this can come back to bite us, Emily. It's absolutely fine. Um... <laughs> yes, I will. I will drink to that. I will drink to that indeed. But yes, but 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 who knows where we will even be by later on this afternoon. It sounds as though there are another raft of announcements coming our way. So we will be watching and waiting. And no doubt by the time this episode is released on Friday, the picture will once again be very, very different on the COVID front. However, we have other news to cover this week. So let's crack on and talk about that. So... In the last week, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport announced its preferred candidate to be the next chair of the Charity Commission. Now, we had some confusion over the last few weeks about whether or not a candidate had actually been chosen, in that, you know, a DCMS spokesperson said they had been chosen, uh, and then the Culture Secretary, Nadine Dorries, said that they hadn't. But uh, in the last week, the government's preferred candidate for the chair has been revealed. So the candidate's name is Martin Thomas, and he will be appearing in front of the DCMS Select Committee for them to approve of him, or not, on Thursday this week. So that's the day after the episode gets recorded, but before it's released. Thomas has spent more than 20 years working in the insurance and financial services sector and is chair of NHS Resolution, an arm's-length body of the Department of Health and Social Care that helps resolve disputes involving the NHS. But on top of that, he also has some experiences as a charity trustee. He has previously chaired the charity Women for Women International UK, which supports women who have survived war. And he's currently the chair of Downside Up, a charity that supports families with children with Down syndrome in Russia. He's also the chair of the poetry charity, the Forward Arts Foundation. And perhaps surprisingly, it's that last one that has caused a bit of a stir. So Joe Morgan, who is the uh, director of the Good Law Project, which has been doing some amazing work holding the government to account over the Charity Commission and other things, tweeted following the announcement. He said, no poet will lead a regulator whilst I have breath in my body, uh, along with a link to the Guardian story about Martin Thomas being named. Right. So I would say that's a fairly strong reaction coming out there. Yeah. And honestly, it's it's a little bit baffling. I mean, to start with, there isn't any evidence that Thomas actually writes poetry himself. He may well do. But 
actually all we've heard is that he chairs a charity which awards poetry prizes. And I just, I can't help wondering if, if Morgan would have had the same reaction had Martin been the, had Martin Thomas been the chair of the Booker Prize Foundation, for example. Like, what is it about poetry that is so distasteful and so provoking here? Um, and obviously I should probably declare an interest. Uh, I'm a poet. I do performance poetry in my spare time. And, to be clear, I'm not making any claims for myself either about being a good poet or, for that matter, being able to chair a statutory regulator. Uh, but I'm not sure that one thing precludes you from doing the other. You know, being able to string words together in particular patterns to express different emotions may not actually be a bad thing in many jobs. Um, I keep reading the tweet and just thinking, is it, I mean, it's probably just a bad Twitter joke, but yeah. I really don't get it. It doesn't land with me in the slightest. No, and he didn't come back and explain it at all, did he? Um, no. You know, and I just, plenty of poets I know have like serious high pressure jobs and plenty of people who have serious jobs scroll poetry on the side. Um, you know, just about every English teacher you've ever met for a start they're probably doing it around your children as well. You should know that. <laughs> you know, and, and I'd love to see somebody like, say, Benjamin Zephaniah as chair of the charity commission. And I suspect... Now, that would be cool. Yeah, right? And I suspect so would Joe Morgan. Um, and it's just, I don't know, there's just a, a deeply small C conservative notion to suggest that anybody who wants to engage with an art form shouldn't do it alongside a day job. Because what happens there is that is really limiting who gets to take part in the arts in quite an unpleasant, classist way, um, which I'm not sure Morgan meant to do. Um, and yeah, as we said, he doesn't he doesn't really elaborate on what his issue is at all. And it's just a really bizarre statement, um, because actually, if that's the worst thing you can find to say about this guy as a candidate for charity commission chair, then on the face of it, he's a dance site more appropriate than the previous two people who've held the role. Yep, yeah, well, I definitely can't put that any better than our resident poet who has artfully deconstructed <laughs> that tweet there. So um, who knows? It's, a, it's It was an unusual reaction. Um, but on Thursday, we will see Thomas go in front of the committee for his cross-examination. And famously, Baroness Stowell, the last incumbent of the role, was unanimously rejected by the DCMS Select Committee something that has never happened before, because they felt that she didn't have enough charity experience and she wasn't politically independent enough, because, of course, she was, in fact, a Conservative peer. Right, and the chair before her was William Shawcross, and at his select committee hearing, um, which at the time was in front of the Public Administration Select Committee, he was voted in by a majority of four to three, with MPs that voted against his appointment, again, expressing strong concerns over his political impartiality. Greg Mulholland, who was a Liberal Democrat MP and member of the committee at the time, said Shawcross had, quote, publicly espoused not only a clear party political preference to the Conservative Party, but has also been quite disdainful of other political parties in his published writings. It was also arguably his influence that led to the Charity Commission having to appear in the High Court and pledge not to interfere with charities' funding decisions following the whole debacle over whether the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust should have funded the advocacy group CAGE, um, because the director of CAGE way, way back described Jihadi John as a beautiful young man and suggested he'd been radicalised by the security services. He'd been in contact with CAGE, JRCT had funded CAGE, the Charity Commission got involved. And yeah, there is an argument to say that was a lot to do with, with Shawcross's own sort of political ideologies. Absolutely. And so it may be that yesterday's select committee threw up new information about Martin Thomas, but if not, he seems like a much less controversial choice than his immediate predecessors. 
I mean, yes, he is a white, middle-class, highly educated man, you know, uh, plus ça change. It might have been nice to see a little more diversity in the choice of candidate. Uh, but all things considered, he doesn't seem obviously inappropriate as a choice. We shall wait and see. You in the distant future of Friday already know what's what's happened. Um, we shall wait and see. So next up, we've got an, another news story from this week. The number of people who have recently donated to UK charities has fallen by almost 3 million compared with before the pandemic, a new report has found. So this is research from the tech company Lightful in partnership with pollsters YouGov, which found that 22.5 million people donated to charity in the three months to October this year. Which sounds great, but that's compared with 25.4 million who donated during the same period in 2019. Um, and the figures were based on responses from more than 300,000 people. Absolutely. And uh, Vinay Nair, who is the chief executive of Lightful, said it's crucial that the government and institutional funders act quickly to provide the sector with more direct grants alongside the online training, tools and funds needed to develop critical digital skills. And of course, this has been a really difficult period for people financially. We all know that. Um, so it's not really surprising that we will have seen donations falling through that pandemic period. And many people will likely have given in other ways, giving their time and their energy through volunteering, for one thing. But that fundraised income hole is still very much there. And we cannot rely on individual donors to just be the ones who plug that gap. And the research comes after similar findings from other organisations. Um, the Lightful Report itself highlighted research by the Law Family Commission on Civil Society that described a perfect storm for fundraising in a survey of 350 charity leaders caused by several pandemic-related factors, including burnout, unemployment and rising inflation, as well as that surge in demand. Right. And the Charities Aid Foundation's UK Giving Report 2020, published last month, found that 1.6 million fewer people in the UK donated to charity in 2020 compared with the previous year. But that did also find that the total amount given rose by about 700 million because people gave more. So obviously that is a net win for the sector. But it does make the situation a little bit more precarious because obviously you're relying on fewer people. So losing a few donors is going to have a much bigger impact than it might have done previously. Ultimately, it would just be nice if the government could put its hand in its pocket and offer the sector a bit more support, wouldn't it? I mean, I think better late than never is the phrase that once again is coming to mind. Absolutely. Um, so speaking of the government, uh, we've got uh, the animal charity Nowzad, uh, formerly based in Kabul, has been back in the headlines this week after the charity's founder Penn Farthing accused a whistleblower of lying over claims that the Prime Minister personally intervened to order the transport of his animals out of Afghanistan. Yes, and this is a rapidly developing story. So we're just really reporting up to the point at which we have the information on Wednesday. But listeners may remember the story from the summer. Back in August, when the Taliban took control of Kabul, Farthing launched a fundraiser which was backed by a number of celebrities that raised more than £200,000 to charter a plane to get his staff and his animals out of Afghanistan. Now, at the time, the evacuation was, um, you know, well, chaos. I'm just going to use the word chaos here. Um, and uh, Farthing did at one point accuse the Ministry of Defence of blocking his flight out of the country after there were complications about getting to the airport in Kabul. But he was subsequently evacuated along with around 200 animals on the 27th of August. His staff did not make it on the flight, but I believe they did subsequently uh, make it to Pakistan. Um, so they did manage to get out, but they weren't on the flight. 
And there was a lot of debate at the time over whether the evacuation of animals had meant that fewer people were able to be rescued from Afghanistan or whether it had taken up military time that could have been used to save more lives. And it's worth saying, Penfarthing has always completely rejected these ideas. Absolutely. But this week, the situation came under fresh scrutiny after an ex-diplomat called Raphael Marshall testified to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and revealed the extent of the chaos he had witnessed from his job during the Kabul evacuation. So Marshall resigned from his job following a week-long stint on the Afghan Special Cases team, which worked to evacuate eligible Afghans and bring them to the UK after the Taliban claimed Kabul in August. He gave an excoriating account of that time to the committee. And besides claims that fewer than 5% of the people who applied to be evacuated had received assistance, and that the FCDO had junior officials with no local knowledge working on specialist cases, he said that the Prime Minister had given a direct instruction to use army capacity to help Nauzad evacuate its animals. According to his 40-page testimony, he said there was a direct trade-off between transporting Nauzad's animals and evacuating British nationals and Afghan evacuees, including Afghans who had served with British soldiers. Now, of course, Nauzad had chartered its own plane, thanks to the insistence of its supporters. But where the capacity strain came in, according to Marshall, was down to the limited number of soldiers that were available to bring eligible people into the airport for evacuation and the limited capacity that was also in the airport itself. Right, and we covered this story earlier in the week and Nauzad didn't respond to a request for comment. But Farthing took to Twitter to dismiss the reports, saying, Let's make this bloody crystal clear and on the record. Not one single British soldier was used to get me or the Nauzad dogs and cats into Kabul airport. This whistleblower lied to Parliament. Nauzad supporters paid for cargo flight, not the useless British government. Absolutely. And um, the charity also tweeted, when does the lying stop and why keep using Nauzad to hide the incompetence of this government? I do think there is a glimmer of a fair point there. Uh, You know, the the departure from Afghanistan was a mess. And once again, we're chatting about cats and dogs. Um, The government's also, you know, not doing so well this week. And again, we're having a discussion about something other than Christmas parties. But I have to say with with Farthing's tweets, no one's implying the government paid for the plane. Like that's never been a conversation anyone's having. Like we're, we're very clear about that, which is, is what his tweet seems to suggest. You know, it, it is about the resources that may or may not have been used. And um, Downing Street is, is continuing in its very robust line of denials this week um, uh, in relating to this case as well. In response to a request for comment, the Foreign Office referred Third Sector to an earlier TV interview with Boris Johnson uh, in which he described the claim that he intervened on behalf of the charity as complete nonsense. But I have to say that yesterday evening, it was Tuesday evening, the claims that the Prime Minister had nothing to do with the evacuation were further muddied after a letter was published that was written to Penfarthing from the PM's Parliamentary Private Secretary, Trudy Harrison, in which she confirmed that the Nauzad animals could be evacuated on his chartered flight and that the MOD would ensure a slot was available. This story is still unfolding. We will keep an eye on it as it goes. Yeah, and I will make sure that kind of when this show goes live, the latest bits of the story are in the show notes as well. And next up, it's also not been a great week for charities involved with royalty. After an independent inquiry found that Michael Fawcett, who is the former chief executive of one of Prince Charles's charities, the Prince's Foundation, coordinated with fixers over honours for a donor to the charity. 
Uh, so the charity published a summary of the findings of an investigation conducted by the auditing firm EY into claims made by the Sunday Times newspaper that Fawcett had helped to secure an honour for the Saudi Arabian billionaire Mahfouz Marai Murabak bin Mahfouz in return for donations to the charity. Now, Mahfouz denies any wrongdoing. The EY report found no evidence that trustees at the time were aware of the communications between Fawcett and these so-called fixers. Fawcett resigned as chief executive of the Prince's Foundation last month after temporarily stepping down when claims about the charity were published in September. The Charity Commission last month opened a statutory inquiry into the Mahfouz Foundation because of concerns that it received donations intended for the Prince's Foundation. So clearly there are a lot of layers to what is going on here with these charities. Then last weekend, the Sunday Times published an article claiming that Centre Bali, a charity founded by Prince Harry, which supports the mental health and well-being of children and young people who are affected by HIV in Lesotho and Botswana, had also accepted donations from Mahfouz about seven years ago. The paper alleged that Prince Harry had agreed to see Mahfouz in 2013 after he made a donation of £50,000 to the charity. It claims they met more than once to discuss the work of Centre Bali and that the meetings opened the door for access to the Prince of Wales, a claim that the Duke of Sussex has denied. In a statement, the Duke said that he had severed ties with Mahfouz in 2015 and had also expressed concerns about the motives of the donor. And the charity has said it's entirely normal and legitimate for patrons to meet potential donors and that all donations had been made in full compliance with charity law. Centabali stressed that it would not have accepted the donations if it believed there was anything improper to do with them. And, you know, in fairness, this bit about patrons meeting potential donors is is completely true. Donors, I mean, particularly those ones giving large amounts to the charity, you know, the kind of major givers, they want to be made to feel special. And, you know, meeting a celebrity patron or someone involved with the charity is pretty commonplace and quite a nice, easy kind of perk you can give them as a sort of thank you, as a kind of we recognise what you're doing for this charity, for this cause. And okay, a knighthood is probably going overboard for a charity donation. <laughs> but, you know, a fancy lunch and a chat to say thank you. That isn't necessarily suspicious. And I think this is one of those stories that's kind of got a bit hyped up from outside the charity sector because it sounds kind of, and because it involves the royals, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, I think actually Centavalia are completely right. This is, this, is, this is pretty normal. And as far as royal patrons go, I really think you could do a whole lot worse than Prince Harry. That's entirely true. <laughs> and then lastly, I regret to inform you that terrible people are still being terrible. And once again, they are inflicting that terribleness on the RNLI. I'm so bored of it. I really am. It's. <sighs> I do feel like we talk about them a lot on the podcast, but also they're under attack unfairly a lot. It's like, shocking. Yeah. Everyone needs to get a grip. Um, so the, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution was forced to take down its website last weekend over a suspected hacking attack. Um, the website is thankfully now back up and running again, but it was suspended over suspicious activity that was detected on the site last Friday. And on the same day, the charity had to warn its staff and volunteers to stay vigilant after its employees received threats that were subsequently reported to the police. The day before the website was taken down, The Independent reported that the far-right political party Britain First had mounted a new campaign, urging its supporters to join a, quote, complaints drive aimed at the RNLI to pressure them to abandon their support for illegal immigrants and people trafficking and focus instead on saving British lives, end quote. The group set up an automated online form that sent emails written by Britain First leaders to the RNLI's chief executive, Mark Dowie. 
Absolutely. And as we have repeatedly discussed on the podcast, the charity has faced increasing criticism over the last year from anti-migrant groups over its role in saving lives in the English Channel. And this is work that the RNLI has always staunchly defended. And just on last week's episode, of course, we were discussing uh, the accounts of um, people blocking lifeboat crew members from entering the English Channel to rescue migrants in difficulty. Um, and it was a fundraising campaign was set up last week uh, following those reports. Um, the GoFundMe page, which has since been amended into a more straightforward fundraiser, was originally set up with the notional aim of fitting RNLI boats with rocket launchers to, quote, blast idiot gammons into the sea. Yeah, I was very sad when that got taken down and kind of, you know, turned into a more a more neutral fundraiser. I completely see why it happened. Um I'm a little sad. Um, But yeah, to be clear, this sort of attack is likely to have cost the charity money. People use the website as the portal for making donations. And if it's out of service, they can't do that. Um, And, you know, at this point, all you can think is like, really, guys, lifeboat charities and people who are literally in the process of drowning, like those are the people you want to go after. And you don't even know why a lifeboat is launching. You don't even know who it's going to save. And and should they be checking passports before they drag people on? Um, Or or, or is is, is there going to be a colour bar on RNLI boats if these guys get their way, which they won't, clearly, because RNLI is awesome and is standing up to this nonsense. Um, But yeah. We support you all the way. Let's have some good news stories to cheer ourselves up. So each week we are bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we have spotted in the sector. And I have to say I am intrigued by a four-year-old giving Rebecca Cooney a midlife crisis. So let's hear a little bit more about that, please. Well, so that's going to be our second story in the bulletin. First one up, we've got a story about the Rail to Refuge scheme, which I'm sure people will have seen uh, was launched during the pandemic, uh, which was offering free train travel to women, children and men fleeing domestic abuse um, who have been given an offer of a place of refuge. Since its launch, um, the scheme has helped 2,265 survivors, including 650 children, reach safety. On average, Rail to Refuge helps four survivors, including children, find safety each day. And 64% of survivors would not have been able to travel without Rail to Refuge and could have been left at increased risk of homicide or suicide. And this scheme was just such a simple, clever scheme where basically train companies were saying, if you're in trouble, let us know and we will get you where you need to go. And it's had, as we can see, a remarkable impact. Women's Aid is calling for this scheme to be extended beyond the pandemic and let's hope that it is because it just is such a neat way that people can be helped. Yes, I hope so. That sounds really remarkable and just a great effort. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, yes, so this is a four-year-old from Stafford who has raised more than £3,000 for a local hospice by cycling 10 miles. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I've got my own midlife crisis impending now. Right. Like, listen, I'm of an age where I start to realise that people who uh, are achieving incredible things are either the same age as me or like much, much younger. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do. Four years think, old really takes the biscuit. Yeah. Yeah. That is taking the mick a bit. But um, yeah, this this incredible overachiever of a four year old uh, was inspired to do something uh, following a talk at his primary school about charity and fundraising. Apparently he went home with a lot of questions about what charities do and then asked his family if he could do some fundraising himself. He wanted to do it in the name of his nanny Carol, who died in 2009 from cancer after being looked at at the Catherine House Hospice in Staffordshire. 
So Jacob, who lives in Doxy in Staffordshire with his mum Isha and his dad Jack, decided to take a bike ride along a a disused railway covering 10.2 miles in total. Uh, His mum said that uh, the furthest he had ridden uh, prior to that was six and a half miles. Um, So he completed the challenge on November the 14th uh, with around 20 members of family and friends joining him, raising £3,158 with more donations yet to come in for Catherine House Hospice. Amazing. So that is amazing. He said, I felt very proud of myself and was happy my friends and family came to see me. I seriously, Jacob, that is impressive. Well done. Good for you, Jacob. That's fantastic just brilliant wonderful stuff well congratulations to to jacob for a very uh effective bike ride we're now off to drown our sorrows at a business meeting um so we'll be back with another episode soon make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm emily burt And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. And we'll see you next week.